0: We have been considering the Apostle Paul, his, uh, some of his life, and his ministry, and the gospel he proclaimed. The Apostle Paul was, of course, chosen to be the special apostle to the Gentiles, and that we found to be a wondrous working of God. God not only gave him the knowledge of salvation— in christ and the wondrousness of how that salvation comes he also made known to him the new covenant form of the israel of god which would include the gentiles in the one holy nation and so uh, though he was the apostle to the gentiles he never forgot his countrymen his heart was for their salvation We find when we read his life, he would begin his ministry in the synagogues on his journeys. He desired to go back to Jerusalem, though his life was in danger for doing so, that he might proclaim the gospel to them. And we read in the 10th chapter of Romans, we began looking into this chapter last week, and we're going to look at one verse particularly, and that will be verse 4. But we begin our reading... Again at verse 1 of Romans chapter 10. Paul the Apostle writes as God gave him to write by his Holy Spirit, his very word. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For, and that is in the vein of a because, here's the reason, for Christ. Is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Verse 4 few words. These few words supply one of the most significant theological assertions in all of the writings of the Apostle Paul. So, what we look at is huge in meaning though few in words. The end, meaning the purpose, the consummate goal of the law, was reached when Christ came, when he fulfilled it. And I'll remind you that when the New Testament speaks of the law, and particularly the law as it came through Moses, and uh, that old covenant which was associated with the law that was given through Moses, That is not limiting it to the moral commands of the law. That is the law as was given in moral commands indeed. It was also given in ceremonial ordinances and commands. Sacrifices were appointed the way those sacrifices were to be uh, offered. Uh, Certain ceremonies were appointed. Special days were appointed. So there was a ceremonial law. And then also within that law of Moses there was a civic aspect to govern the nation itself so that the nation was governed by the civic aspect of the law that was given through Moses. The New Testament doesn't divide that up. Sometimes men do in their theological systems. But when the New Testament uses the word the law it is comprehending what God gave through Moses of old. So, when we read here that Christ is the end of the law, does this mean that the law, as a covenant established through Moses, is ended? Well, this is not, of course, the only place where the Apostle declares the end of the law's reign in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle says that due to the blindness of the children of Israel of old, quote, they could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. They could not see the end of that old covenant reign of the law. They could not perceive the purpose for which it was given. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle says that the very same blindness was in the Jews of his day. They were still unable, quote, to look to the end of that which is abolished. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 14, until this day. So it's only as the blindness was removed would they be able to see the end, the purpose of God reaching its goal in Christ, ending the old covenant that was made with Israel through Moses. And that's what the apostle is praying about when he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according uh, to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So we will need to consider. The relationship of the lord jesus christ to the law and how then he is the end of the law for righteousness a big question isn't it it's a huge question and as in any biblical doctrine we must find its answer from scripture only lest we wrongly apply things, as for instance, when in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says that we're not under the law, but under grace. That can be misapplied, of course, teaching as some have done, the denial of the necessity of pursuing holiness. When of course the scripture says in Hebrews 12:14, "Follow peace with all men and holiness." without which no man shall see the Lord. So not being under the law does not exempt from obedience to the commandments of our Lord, as they are now given us under the new covenant. But being under grace gives us the only way we're enabled to walk in this new way of life. Only grace enables us to do so. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures, of course, makes it very clear that if we profess faith in Christ, but we continue to walk in darkness, that is, in the ways of this world, we're under deception. The Apostle wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. What we must understand is that the whole new life that God gives in Christ and the new walk of the believer does not come through the law. It all comes through the faith of the Son of God. You see, the Apostle Paul did not simply say in Romans six you're not under the law but under grace. He began that by saying, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law but under grace. God does something in the heart of the believer that enables them to walk in a newness of life that is not there by nature and cannot be there by nature, nor can it be produced by the law. The law doesn't make anyone holy. So, our task is to consider, first, how Christ is the end of the law. Very important teaching here. How Christ is the end of the law. And then secondly, how Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So we need to learn then the application of these things. So how is Christ the end of the of the law. Well, the first essential is for us to understand that the Apostle Paul is not saying that by bringing in a new era, actually establishing the new covenant, that the Lord Jesus Christ simply ended the old covenant's reign. He did. But what it is saying is that Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. Well, there's a classic illustration, I think probably about as good as you could find, uh, of the meaning of the word end translated here from the Greek telos. And probably the best illustration would be that of a race course. The word for end in Romans 10, 4, signifies that there is a result that is brought about by something else. The finish line of a race is both the goal of the race, because the race was run in order to reach that finish line, right? Correct. And it's also the termination point Because when the finish line is reached. The race is no more. It's over then. It has been completed. Its goal has been reached. So Christ. Is both. The end of the law. That is he is the goal. That was reached. And. Anticipated and pointed toward, and he is the termination who brings its era, its reign, to a close. By the costly mistake of viewing the law as an end in itself, viewing the law and obedience to the law. As a means of acquiring righteousness, the Jews missed God's righteousness. They tried to produce their own by the law. They missed God's righteousness. That is, they missed the righteousness that God provides in Christ only. Rejecting him while attempting to make themselves righteous by the works of the law. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. No one at any time was ever made righteous by the law. The law makes no one righteousness. Not even during the time of the administration of the law when it was in force under the old covenant. When the law does its work it does the opposite of producing righteousness. It cannot produce righteousness. In Romans 8 the apostle speaks of what the law cannot do. It cannot produce righteousness. It is the means, rather by which sin is made known, and points to the promise of salvation in Christ alone. The apostle, of course, had already dealt with that, showing universal depravity, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, when in the third chapter, he writes in verses 20 through 23, Therefore, By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. The Old Testament saints who were saved by God's grace, they weren't saved by the law. They were saved because they laid hold of the promise. God had given great promise, starting in the garden. God had given promise through Abraham. It's called a covenant And uh, in the Old Testament. In, it's a covenant in the sense of promise. Mostly in the New Testament, it is referred to as the promise or the coming of Christ. Various things are taught. Various prophecies and promises are given into the Old Testament. When we read of the saints who possess saving faith, as we would term it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, we read, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, that is, Christ did not come, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They believed. They trusted the word that God had given, the promise, as it's often called in the New Testament. So when the Apostle Paul uh, corrects the Galatians, the Galatians were influenced by those we term Judaizers. They didn't come and say, no, you can't believe that Christ is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. No, they didn't say that. They said, no, you cannot be saved by only believing. You must also be circumcised and keep the law. That is, you must become practicing Jews, in essence, as well as believe on Christ. So they attempted to bring Gentile believers under the law. So that in Galatians... The purpose of the law is shown that it was never given to give righteousness and life. It was given to bring to the only one who could. So if you just turn over to Galatians, we'll read a passage in Galatians chapter 3 and in verses 16 through 25. We read here in Galatians 3, beginning at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. In this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, that consistent, of course, with the promise, which was 430 years after, cannot, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? What was its purpose? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one. Uh, a mediator doesn't mediate simply by for one. He's, he's there for two parties, not one. But God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came... We were kept under the law, and here faith is in a certain way in which we would use it. It's speaking of the coming of Christ, the the reality of his coming. Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Sometimes, and it can be used in an evangelical sense, that verse... But what the verse is actually contextually saying is that the law is there to bring us to the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of what God had promised. But after that faith is come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. We're no longer under the reign of the old covenant law. For you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You see, the administration of the law ended in Christ. Why? Because he fulfilled it. And in him, the goal for which it was given was reached. So we have an important question. The important question, how did Christ fulfill the law? How did he fulfill the law? The law. Well, the first way that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law was by perfectly keeping it, obeying every precept, whether moral, ceremonial, civic, every precept of the law, without the least deviation from its just and righteous demands. He performed every duty. He refrained from every prohibition. Not only outwardly, not only did he do that outwardly, there are those who have an outward morality, but inwardly, in his heart, perfectly fulfilling the will of his Father. Perfectly fulfilling the will of God. Prophetically, in Psalm 40, the Lord Jesus says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So, he could affirm that doing the will of the Father, and by the way, not simply above human desire, doing the will of his Father above human need, Now, you get what I said there? He did the will of the Father not simply above human desire, desire for something that would distract him from it, but he did it above human need because that was what truly satisfied him. You remember he said in John chapter 4? My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Men, there are some men who live by a moral discipline, who can abstain from immoral acts, perform dutifully what they deem their responsibility, yet can still have hearts as wicked as ever. inward lustful desires and thoughts, wandering eyes, covetousness, self-seeking ways, even religiously, as Paul would speak of those who were lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Whatever comes along in a pleasurable way, the things of God go. That takes precedence. While the Lord Jesus And he only loved the Father and did his will to the depth of his righteous soul. He, and he alone, perfectly kept the supreme commandment of God and the second command. The supreme command in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, love thy neighbor as thyself. The Lord Jesus brought all commands, of course, you remember, up under those two commandments. The love in the heart of Christ for the Father that led him to not uh, only keep perfectly the law of God, but a special command that was given to him. Sometimes God gives special commands. You read that in the prophets. God would command them to do certain things. It would be very difficult. They'd have to go to a people that wouldn't hear them, that were hard-hearted, that would persecute and sometimes kill them. They weren't listening. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want what the prophets declared, but God would... Command them to go to them. So they had a special command. I have a special command. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. The greatest discouragement in times in the ministry, the Lord reminds me <laughs> in some way. That's the command he gives me. But the Lord Jesus had a special command, the most solemn of all. A special command given him. And in this commandment he would show his perfect love for the Father. Perfect, complete, self-denial. Who would become obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. So the night before he says to his apostles in John chapter 14 verses 30 and 31... Hereafter, I won't talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. What a statement. If the adversary, the old devil, (laughs) can't find anything in one, nobody else can, he wouldn't have any problem with me finding it, or you. But the Lord Jesus says, he hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. that the father gave me commandment arise let us go hence talking about the cross his perfect love was matched by his perfect faith a perfect trust in his father so much so That those who put him on the cross, as we read, as for instance in Matthew chapter 27, verse 43, those put him on the cross, those who put him there said, He trusted in God. They were right. Absolutely right. And with all the hatred, ungodly men poured and poured out against him. His challenge always remained the same to them, and to the whole world, as it were, which of you convinceth me of sin. How foolish, depraved man. How foolish. How even religiously deceived. Those who think that by their own efforts, by their own works, by something they add, by their own morality that they can produce a righteousness acceptable to god that was the jews problem they being ignorant of god's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of god the heart the heart is deceived and even the righteousness of those who are religious, but lost is unrighteous. What a word in Isaiah 64, 6. We are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Well, where is there righteousness that God accepts? The righteousness God accepts was shown in one and one only. None other. From Adam to the end of the world. Only one. One who is given a unique title in Scripture. He is called Jesus Christ the righteous. He is referred to as the Holy holy one of israel no one enters heaven by their own righteousness except him for him alone the triumphant command is given in psalm 24 verse 7 lift up your heads o ye gates And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. He, the only one worthy, perfectly righteous, entering heaven by his own righteousness. No one else. No one else. Not a single sinner. Not a one enters heaven apart from Him and apart from possessing His righteousness. And that righteousness cannot come by attempting to work it. It's impossible. But by faith only, trusting Him, looking to Him alone. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. He alone can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no other way. The Lord Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the law in keeping all of its precepts. I told you I got in my porch this morning. The second way, the second way the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law for which he is its end, its goal, that to whom it pointed and in whom it would be completed is by fulfilling all of its sacrificial types, its foreshadowments, its pictures of sacrifice from the Old Covenant. From of old, it was very clearly made known that since the law of God was broken, it's very purpose to expose the sin that has separated from God. There is nothing more horrendous under heaven than sin against God. And the only one who'll ever get saved, if you want to use that terminology, is the one who comes to know they are a sinner. And it's horrendous what sin has done. The broken law. God gave the law. The people couldn't keep the law because of sin. So, God appointed substitutionary sacrifice. Substitutionary sacrifice. If the sinner was approaching or was to be able to approach the infinitely holy living God. The broken law must be vindicated. That broken law must be vindicated or else the sinner must die, must perish. So, morning and evening, lambs were slain. The blood flowed. The smoke of sacrifice constantly ascended. There were special types of sacrifices. Lambs, birds. They were sacrificed for particular kinds of sin. But not all of these sacrifices combined Not all of the blood of animals that was shed of old, beginning from the first one that God himself shed in the Garden of Eden and clothed our first parents with their coats, pointing to substitutionary sacrifice in Christ. And all of the blood shed thereafter, all of it, could not remove a single sin. It was a type, a prophetic type, projecting forth. Their purpose looked forward to the coming of Christ, to the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. It was not, quote, the blood of bulls and of goats, But by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Never will he ever again have to offer any sacrifice. The one sacrifice of Christ on the cross has eternal efficacy. Even when the believer comes to realize, oh, we still fight against sin. It's still in me. And we still sometimes have memory of things that torment us. Those who have been brought under a true conviction for sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us. That means it does now. It will continue to do so forever. (laughs) The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Christ was the perfect lamb, without spot, without blemish. He alone could stand before the judgment bar of God and bear the sins of others, satisfying not only the perfect righteousness demanded by the law, but offering the one sacrifice alone, that perfectly satisfied the justice of God against sinners. And when that sinner is brought to know him, it's a wondrous thing. Justice can have no more to condemn them with. Isaiah wrote, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, And afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the cross, At the cross. For all who knowing they are sinners. Realizing they have no righteousness whatsoever of their own. Who look to Him. And who look only to Him. Who trust Him. And trust Him only. A great exchange takes place. Your sins. He takes unto Himself. His righteousness is put to your account. Isn't that a wondrous thing? He felt everything sin will bring against one in its condemnation, in its punishment, though he never sinned in the place of others. That's why I sent that Spurgeon wrote yesterday. He suffered everything. The suffering was not mitigated in the least on the cross. He suffered the full brunt of the wrath of God and His justice against sin for others. Those who are called, those who believe, those who come to know Him have a great exchange. He took their sins. They are given His righteousness. How utterly blind, foolish, those who think they have a righteousness by the law or by any other thing they add that God would accept. Who is so brashly bold as to think they have a righteousness equal to that of the Holy Son of God? Yea. Yea. The saint, if he or she had a righteousness of their own that could get them into heaven, they don't. If they did, They would throw it away and take Christ's righteousness instead. The apostle says, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. The Lord Jesus perfectly kept all the precepts of the law and all of its aspects. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all the types of the law The sacrificial types. The third way. The third way. The Lord Jesus is the end of the law. Is by terminating, bringing to an end, its reign and administration. For into his hands all things are given. Unto him all authority and power belongs. All of it. He didn't say most of it, some of it. He said all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All things are brought up under his supreme rule alone. When Christ came, when he bore the cross for sinners, he didn't come to destroy the law. He didn't come to destroy the prophets. He came to fulfill them. He fulfilled every precept of the law. He fulfilled all the sacrificial types and shadows of the law. And he fulfilled every prophet's messianic prediction. And you can say, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets I am not come to destroy but to fulfill he was their consummate goal at the same time he brought the era of which the law was center to its end and established his own supreme rule alone to govern the only true Israel of God that would be called from Jew and Gentile made into one holy nation. This was the Father's voice from the Mount of Transfiguration. Nothing is incidental in Scripture. When the Lord Jesus Christ took those three apostles to the Mount of Transfiguration. Something incredible happened. Moses and Elijah appeared. Moses and Elijah there with them on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember Peter wanted to make a tabernacle, said, Lord, not just for you, Moses and Elijah, let's make three tabernacles. And what happened when he did? A voice comes from heaven. What does that voice have to say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. God now speaks in Christ. Moses represented what? The law. Elijah represented who? The prophets. This is the one who declares all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth by the golden scepter of the cross. He has forever taken the reins of eternal sovereign rule. As in Hebrews 1.8, drawn from Psalm 45. Under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. We do not look to Moses, we look to Christ. We look to him and him only. He is Lord. He is Lord over all. He is sovereign Lord over all. He has all power in His hands. We submit to Him only. Then does the law have no more use for us? Are we not to obey its moral commands? Are they not brought up under the New Covenant? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Through Christ. Through submitting to Him only. His commandments. We do not find to be grievous, according to 1 John 5, 3. He can say, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. But we learn to apply the scriptures and the commands only with eyes that look to Christ. Christ alone. The whole of scripture is still for our prophet, isn't it? All of it. That's what Paul said. When he wrote to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Under the new covenant, God puts his law in the heart. It becomes our desire and delight. And that's a wonderful thing. And it's all as we look to trust only in Christ our Lord. So he who is the end of the law. He who is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. He is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone that believeth. Listen carefully. This is the only saving gospel there is. Christ is not simply the source of the believer's righteousness. It's not simply that our righteousness comes from Him, He is our righteousness. He is the believer's righteousness. He is God's righteousness. God's gift of righteousness. As opposed to any righteousness that man in the futility of his attempts brings forth. He is the believer's righteousness. How blessed. That was declared long before. By the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote of him as, quote, the Lord, meaning Jehovah. The Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Listen to Paul, declaring that it's not a system of do's and don'ts. It's not a righteousness drawn from our faulty obedience. Not a what? but a glorious, divine, human person who is our righteousness. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Of him, of God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Even more incredible. All who are in union with Christ All who are truly in him, all who are united to him, and by faith, become the righteousness of God. I don't know if anybody can fully expound that. The believer becomes the righteousness of God. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. that's wonderful enough. That's glorious enough. It made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. As he is, so are we in this world. It was God's eternal purpose. His grace, grace alone, nothing else. Not what we do. What He has done. Accomplished. Finished. In Him alone, God accepts us. Only in Him. The Apostle writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6. Take a look at it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according... As he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, by Jesus Christ, to himself, according to our good works. Oops! Wait a minute. Whoa! 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 Did I misread that? Did I? Did I say something wrong? Oh, yeah, I guess I did. No, according to the good pleasure of His will. That we might congratulate ourselves on something we've done. Something we've had. No. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Wherein He, not us, He, He, hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Not only are we who are in union with Christ accepted in Him. You know what astounded me? I've told you before when I was a young preacher. Yeah, I know that was a long time ago. (laughs) But you know what, what astounded me? Reading, studying through the Gospel of John. I've told you this before it still astounds me. I bring it up again in John chapter 17 in the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared declared unto them thy name that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may, may be in them. And I in them. That's astounding. God loves us in Christ with the same love. How glorious that is. How glorious. When the old adversary comes along and assaults your mind and tries to do something to diminish your faith or produce doubts. Or come from every corner and everything he can throw against you. Remind yourself that God loves you like he did his son and does love you like he does his son. That salvation's in his sovereign hands. That he's not going to let you go. Cry out with Wesley, thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Christ is the righteousness of all who believe. All who afflicted by sin in truth. All who despair of any ability whatsoever to produce a righteousness God accepts. Who look to, come to, trust only in Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. What a wondrous thing when we truly hear the gospel of the Son of God. Of the grace of God. And realize that Christ becomes ours. He As our righteousness is ours. Not by our doing. By believing. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. He that believeth On the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Turn away from any thought of works for acceptance with God. Any whatsoever, anything you add, anything you do, any movement you make, trusting nothing, and no one else but Christ only. Because salvation is for everyone that believeth. I know the Apostle, when he used that in Romans, he's talking about Jew, Gentile, black, white, free bond, male, female, etc. But it's also individual. 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 Believe. Trust. Rely upon. Look to. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. May God bless his own word and add to his blessing as he will for his glory.